Camilla Marone stars as Mickey, a teen doing what she can to keep her household and her opioid-addicted father afloat. When an opportunity to leave home appears, she's forced to make an impossible decision between obligation and fulfillment. Mickey and the Bear is now playing at Film Forum in NYC. Tickets are available at mickeyandthebear.com. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. Some of the most exciting movies being made today are tackling class tensions and the role of work in our lives. Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, our cover story last issue, is one major example, with its twisty upstairs-downstairs thriller. But many other films have been taking up the subjects of work and class in a variety of different ways. Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You, Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Bird, Mike Lee's Peterloo, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, and Greta Gerwig's upcoming movie Little Women, the cover of our latest issue. For our latest film comment talk at Film at Lincoln Center, we were delighted to discuss work and class with veteran independent filmmaker John Sayles, whose film about striking minors, Matewan, is now available in the Criterion Collection. Joining us was Theo Bugby, a contributor to Film Comment and The New York Times, who also works as an organizer for Writers Guild of America East. Starting off with how Mate One was conceived, we covered a lot of ground, spanning decades at the movies and in American history. Let's go to the discussion. Now, I could have done a really long introduction for you, John, because of all you've... I'm very old. Yeah. <laughs> no, because of all you've written and directed, uh, of course, you know. Um, some of my first exposure was through, through Lone Star in the 90s and City of Hope as well, um, were big, big movies for me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really wonderful to have you here. Thanks. Um, and Teo is, is a kind of a, uh, I, I was a little mischievous in, in, in bringing you here. Um, Teo has been a critic with uh, Film Comics. She wrote our cover feature on Black Klansman uh, last summer, as well as a few, a few other things since then. Um, but you also have another life. It's true. I, I work as a union organizer as well. And so this is a nice merge of the two. Yeah. But I thought just to give us some, some sort of way in, one way uh, I thought we could talk about things is just by talking about Madawan and how that as a movie came about. Um, Madewan. Madewan, sorry. Yeah. I knew I was mispronouncing it. And uh, as a movie, I'm, I mean, I'm curious what it was like making a movie like that in the 80s, let's say, which was not, let's say, an especially receptive time to a movie about about a, a union, uh, how it got made, you know, and, and why you thought it was a good time to make it as well. Well, the, it was just as hard to make as any independent movie. So, you know, wasn't what it was about. It was that we were trying to make a movie outside of the, you know, the studio system um, to the point where we thought we had the money when we thought we could make it for a little under $2 million. And then the people who said they were going to put up the money called and said, oh, you know, that bank loan we were going to get to finance them, it didn't happen. And so a year and a half to two years later, we finally did make it for about twice that much money, which just our luck was when independent movies, there were distributors who actually put money up front for movies. And I put some money in and we had some other people you know, independently put some money in and, and mm -hmm. we made it for about three and a half, a little more than three and a half million dollars. Mm -hmm. So 
the subject matter wasn't what was hard. It was just making a fairly ambitious movie, mm -hmm. you know, outside of a of a system where you know, Chris Cooper, who was the lead in it, had never been in a movie before. Um, and that was the good thing about it, which is that, you know, making a movie that far on the the you know the margins of things, you didn't have to say, well, who's bankable? Yeah, he wasn't even recognizable, much less bankable. <laughs> yeah. um, why, why making it then? It was a, the Maitwan massacre was an incident that I had heard about first uh, when I was hitchhiking um, through the West Virginia and Kentucky hills and got a lot of rides from coal miners right during this kind of awful thing that happened within the UMW where there was going to be an election. And Tony Boyle, who was the incumbent, um, was running against a reformer named Jockey Oblonsky, and it was really bitter, and there was a lot of violence and stuff, and people were just kind of shaking their heads and saying, well, we're gonna have another Maitwan massacre mm -hmm. on our hands. And eventually, um, Tony Boyle had um, Jackie Oblonsky and his wife and daughter murdered on Christmas Eve, I think it was, um, and that From, didn't turn out well. In Harlan County, USA. I in think Harlan. that's a, a serious um, yeah. plot point in that documentary yeah. if anybody's seen it and uh and at the same time I, I i you know having having been in some unions having grown up around unions in schenectady new york back when the general electric company pretty much you know was the main employer there before they went elsewhere um <clears throat> I, I kind of knew of the a bit about labor history but also um, the first thing that Ronald Reagan did really almost just to do it and, and lift his leg on the thing um, when he got into office was bust the air traffic controllers union. And kind of he picked that union, I think, or his advisors picked it wisely and that those people made pretty good money. People didn't think they were kind of poor working stiffs who had to punch in every day. Um, the fact was almost everybody in that union did not get their jobs back. Um, and that within about a year of the new people coming in, they got almost everything that those people were, were asking for. So it was very symbolic, I'm just gonna screw this union kind of thing. And I felt like, oh, there were fewer and fewer people who were unionized. I was in about four guilds in the entertainment industry at the time. But I just felt like, oh, maybe we need a reminder of just what it was like when there weren't any unions and, and why they formed and how difficult it was to form them. Yeah. And what, when you were writing the screenplay at the time, and this I guess you would have written it in 84, 85 or so around there? Or Earlier than that. Earlier than that, yeah. 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 I mean, what were you looking at all at, at how previous movies had, had, had treated um, strikes or unions? Or Also in the 70s, there were you know one or two high-profile ones, like Norma Ray, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, there just weren't that many. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was aware of, uh, there was one called Fury, I think, way back, like Jimmy Cagney, I think, is uh -huh. in it. Um, and there were some European ones um, that, that I knew of. Uh, there's a great movie um, by Mario Monticelli, the Italian director, called The Organizer oh, yeah. with Marcello Mastriani, which if you get a chance to see that, it's a yeah. terrific movie uh, of a failed strike. But eventually, you, you, know, you get the feeling like the, the strikers themselves had learned something and yeah. it's going to continue in the future. Um, so, so some of it was just kind of thinking of What's a genre? Because the strike genre is not a genre that people are familiar enough with. What's a genre that I can tie to this movie 
um, that will be more familiar. And, and because the, the actual story ended up with kind of a showdown at high noon on the main street of a small town, right. I decided, well, I, I can form this like a Western, like, like a gunfight Western, which is a, a series of escalating confrontations until there's one big blowout at the end. Yeah. And, and how did you approach like the, the characterization? Because I mean, one special thing about your movies, I think, is that you often have a view of a community and many voices and many points of view in a community. Mm -hmm. and, and that's probably something that you went in going. But the challenge there is like, which side are you on? <laughs> is, is the mm -hmm. kind of thing, how do you make sure that it's balanced or do you want it to be balanced? How did you work that out? You know, there, there's um, four or five actual historical characters who there was a little bit written about them. Sid Hatfield, who was the sheriff, um, the agent provocateur um, for the management people, C.E. Lively was a real person. The character that James Earl Jones played, uh, Few Clothes Johnson, was based on a real person. Uh, the rest of them are kind of composites, and um, I had read there wasn't really that much kind of history written about these people, but I found a lot of diaries, um, things that were written by, oh, my dad and I used to go down in the coal mines in the 20s and this is what it was like. Or, mm -hmm. you know, even one woman whose mother had run a boarding house in a, in a, a company camp. Mm -hmm. um, in some, some stuff written by immigrants and, and that was the first job that anybody in their family got. So using those, I kind of put the characters together, mm -hmm. um, thinking about them. I read um, uh, books by a couple of the um, not so well-known, but you know, guys who were pretty high up in the Wobblies mm -hmm. um, because I figured that the character Chris Cooper um, you know, plays is somebody who has been an IWW organizer, mm -hmm. a wobbly, and then now has kind of, you know, been sent out by this fairly new UMW um, to see what he can do. Yeah. I think one of the things that I, I feel, I felt most impressed by in Mate, Mate One is the language of the film, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that so much of the way that people speak in it is uh, for lack of a better word, so union-y. Um, <laughs> even in, in union films, in like strike films, it's not necessarily the norm, I would say, to use the language that has been traditionally associated with union mm -hmm. organizing, the sort of brother and sisterness that kind of comes out mm -hmm. of a different kind of colloquialism. Um, and I think that's one of the more interesting aspects to me of the movie. And I was wondering if there was, if that was um, something that, you worked on for the film? You know, it's something that I ran into doing my research. Um, you know, like the Masons have their secret handshakes and words and stuff like that. Um, because being a union man was often very dangerous, there was a kind of sub rosa language and then there was the official language that they would use with each other. So it was a little bit like being in a certain kind of cult or religion or whatever. I got a lot of it from old UMW journals and some of it from the Wobblies and the Wobbly publications. Um, it was as uh, kind of fervent a belief as this is just going to solve everything. This is a time in America in, in, the, in 1920 when an awful lot of people are working in industry, whether they're immigrants or they've been here for a couple generations. So it, it, it seems like we have the masses. Mm -hmm. We are massed. We're not 
isolated on farms anymore, like the Wobblies were trying to, you know, really organize fairly isolated people. Um, these are people who are all together and they're kind of under one roof. We should be able to do this, and this is really going to work. Mm -hmm. And so there was there was a kind of excitement about that, and it was kind of like you know if you were you you, you might not wear it as a badge, but you know it was kind of like being in a club. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the specific, the, the great specific detail, the place and the people and, and, and the different different kind of subsections of people there are, are what makes us so strong and experience the movie because, you know, you really get the sense of how everyone's coming from a different background. And then that dramatically becomes a factor because the management's the management strategy is divide and conquer, basically. Yeah. There, they, there was a, a judge who was a, an advisor and I think a co-owner of a couple of the mines um, who, who talked about always having a judicious mixture mm -hmm. of local miners who were, you know, from the families who lived in the hills forever, immigrants, and then a couple of the, the big mines in the um, Birmingham, Bessemer area that employed black miners had tapped out. And so they brought those people in as well. Mm -hmm. And they just figured, first of all, just naturally, these people don't like each other. They don't trust each other. They'll never get together. Um, and then what if we continue to, to separate them by housing them in different sections of coal company, coal company housing and putting guards in between them? And then sometimes they even made sure that they went into different entrances mm -hmm. to the mine so that they couldn't even find each other down, down in the hole. Wow. Um, and so it's, it, it's kind of telling that with all those precautions, and they, they weren't wrong. These people did not, you know, greet each other with open arms when they ran into each other at first. Um, the treatment was so bad. Um, the people were, were doing so badly in that system um, that they overcame that and formed a union and, and got in it together. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, do you think a movie like that could be made today or how would it be different if it was, if you were making yeah, it Yeah, it could be made today if you could raise the money independently. Mm -hmm. You know, I, yeah. you know, I, I mean, movies get made, you know, within the system if they think they're going to make money. So, mm -hmm. you know, if some star who's big box office right now said, this is the next thing I want to do, right. you know, somebody would kind of say, oh God, okay, how much is it going to cost? <laughs> and it, and it might get made. Yeah. Um, you know, Warren Beatty got to make Reds. You yeah. know, the Warren Beatty of today could get to make something like that as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't know who he is, but, you know, he could. Yeah. Um, well, I, I thought that that might be kind of a segue of, about talking about some movies of coming out now or in the past year or two that, that might have struck either of you in, in terms of how they're effectively showing either, you know, class conflict or class tensions in some way. Um, we were talking before, I know you've, you just saw uh, or recently saw Parasite. Mm-hmm. Uh, that which we had on our cover of our September October issue, um, and this is a great Korean film about. I'm just going to give a little summary for folks. Or how many people have seen Parasite? Just curious. Oh look, I'm, <laughs> that's I'm great to, to hear. Converted here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you know exactly what we're talking yeah. about. Um, but I mean, could you talk a bit about your what do you think of Parasite? Yeah, I, I, I think. Two things really struck me about it, be, be, besides that it, it managed to, to have all the kind of creepy horror stuff that paid off at the end, but actually be about something. Yeah. Um, one was, I thought, a fascinating thing was 
that the, the, the people on the bottom who are living in this funky, funky little place and, you know, eating funky food and, you know, um, putting together pizza boxes to make a living and not really making a living. Um, first of all, and this is a, this is an interesting, you know, kind of conceit. They're as smart or smarter than the, the rich people. Right, um, you know, the, the two kids are, are really, really smart scam artists and pretty well educated. Mm -hmm. um, and then a point is made that they, they can't go on with that education because they don't have any money, but they've, they've through whatever system there is in Korea and through their own efforts probably yeah. educated themselves pretty well. Um, and the second thing that is really interesting, and I think this has something to do with you know, the title, which is, well, who exactly is the parasite, right. yeah. um, is that they don't hate those people in that beautiful mansion. They want to be them. Mm -hmm. And they kind of admire them until the very, very end. Um, and something comes up from the id. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like, well, geez, if we won the lottery, we, we, could, we could live here. And this, this is, we, we, we'd want to buy, we, we want to know the catalogs they shop from. So we could be as cool as they are. Okay. And that's a, that's a really interesting kind of thing. I mean, I know um, in British movies, and there's, there's much a, a much more kind of constant um, hashing of, of class differences in British movies, starting with Dickens and all the movies that were right. made of his stuff. Um, you meet British working class people, and they don't want to be those people. <laughs> it's a point of pride that they'll never be those fucking people. Um, and, and I think that's actually, you know, may, it may not still exist in Britain, but it, 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 it's something that I don't think there ever was in this country. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I, I find really interesting about Parasite, to sort of, you know, your earlier point about if films like this can be, like uh, Mate One, can be made today, um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is the space that it occupies as a huge hit, um, that you have this film that's yeah. uh, very strongly about class. I was look, looking for a different word besides what first came to mind, which was pungent. But it is it is like intensely, bitterly about a class struggle that is the biggest hit of Bong Joon-ho's career. That is a movie that is a big hit, not only in Korea, that is it's big abroad. It has traveled in a way that, um, in some ways, I'm fascinated by his trajectory as a filmmaker in the sense that Okja, um, his, and, and Okja and Snowpiercer, while they are not de devoid of politics by any means, aren't necessarily as uh, politics forward. The, mm -hmm. the politics sort of inform a larger genre story, whereas here it's the class struggle that is basically propelling the narrative. Um, and I think there's something really fascinating about a filmmaker who makes two primarily English language films builds a profile internationally and then just blows it the fuck up. <laughs> it's just like we're gonna make like the like a ballsy, just mm. nasty little <laughs> class struggle film. Like mm -hmm. it's sort of a fascinating um it's a fascinating trajectory that he's taken. That works as a comedy for that works as a two comedy. Thirds of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's another sort of fascinating aspect of it too, that it is deeply pleasurable to watch. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the kind of movie that you want to recommend to friends. It's the kind of movie that you can conceivably 
um, introduced to people who aren't necessarily movie people even, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's out of kind of an art house world and into a more commercial world while still being a phenomenally artful film and a phenomenally expensive one too. I mean, the sets alone, I believe there was a talk here as well about the production Mm -hmm. design. Um, but it's, it's sort of a fascinating, uh, amalgam of like different, both political realities that make that movie possible, mm-hmm. and then at the same time, what it is that it's trying to say, which is um, quite direct. Yeah, I think another thing that um, uh, to look out for, because I haven't seen it yet, although it, it was advertised in the subway car I came over on, is The Irishman, um, right. which has mm-hmm. to do with Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters yeah. Union, and there was the Jack Nicholson movie before that. Um, many, of the American movies that have to deal with unions have to deal with union corruption mm-hmm. and and unions being mobbed up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of unions have been in the past, mm-hmm. not as many as you would think if you watched American movies, but it is, it is part of the life of many of the unions. And sometimes, you know, it was as simple as like the garment workers here in New York. Um, there were mob guys who would hire themselves out as sluggers for the union when mm-hmm. when they clashed with the police and the goons that the police hired. Mm-hmm. But they would also hire themselves out to the management. Oh, okay. um, and it's part of the, I think, consciously or not, campaign to get people to not want to be in unions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and, uh, we're talking about Barbara Ehrenreich before. Um, in her book, Nickel and Dimed, she works at Walmart. And one of the first things she has to do is watch about a week of anti, you know, for an hour a day or something. They take her out of the line and she watches anti-union propaganda. Um, there are Walmart. Have you ever watched one of those videos? Pardon? Have you ever watched one I of those I have videos? watched little bits on, on YouTube. I, they're, they're really, they're, they're really scary. something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you've never been in a union, don't know anything else, which many of their, their employees haven't, you, you know, it's might as well be true. Um, so, so there has also been that, that problem is that what's dramatic about a union? Right. You, you know, what's the most, you know, when you're organizing, it's not that dramatic. It's not until it is. You have great moments of drama, (laughs) but there's not like shootings and mugging, I hope. No, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Things have changed to some degree. People in trunks of cars. Very very, uh, vociferously. Just violent (laughs) tweeting is it for us. But that is interesting because, I mean, the history of unions, especially like the 1920s and and, and teens there, I mean, it's it's horrifically violent, you know. And it's amazing that that's so invisible in cinema to a certain extent. I don't know what else to add to that. But just jumping back to The Irishman, which, which you just um, were mentioning, it's such a strange movie when you think about it from, from a class perspective in a way because it's clearly like a movie that's, to, to a certain extent, just about being a working stiff. It just happens to be that his job is to kill people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like this kind of very moving, you know, elegiac is a word people use for it, a, a, you know, movie about a guy who works all his life and, you know, I, I don't want to spoil the movie for you, but, you know, he's a soldier in the mafia. So, you know, that's mm-hmm. what his, his life is, basically. And but it's interesting that it has to, that it has to be in this crime movie format in a way. So mm-hmm. I wonder if there is often that need to put it. You know, you were talking about how with with Maitwan, you know, you wanted to put it in a Western format mm-hmm. to give it that kind of structure. Do you think there's often that that need to, to make it recognizable? Well, in some way, and, and, and what's dramatic? You know, what's 
what, what, yeah. what's going to get people into the theater and hold their attention for two hours yeah. the jobs that we see the most in movies are the ones that are dangerous or dramatic mm-hmm. you know That's there's true. cops and there's firemen and there's people working in the emergency room in the hospital right. um there's cowboys you know there's you know um on tv there's the deadliest catch Um, And they don't show the boring parts. They just show when the fish show up. Um, But that's dramatic. Right. You know, and and they don't show the undramatic parts very often of of those jobs. There's a, you know, I I had factory jobs where the big deal was that, oh, it looks like in a week and a half, we're going to stop working with the blue plastic and we're going to work with green plastic. And it would be like, oh, wow, I can't wait. And that was the most exciting thing that happened for yeah. weeks on that job yeah it's an interesting question about form when it comes to union films and i, I think maybe as like a, a broader th- question maybe even lefty films because um this particular politics has produced at different times different attempts to sort of break out of traditional genres um and different attempts to sort of like well if you're making a movie that's about organizing or that's about a class struggle or that's about the proletariat um how do you make uh a movie that then reflects what those values are which are collective as opposed to individual so there's you know different versions of sort of leftist film that then sort of take on what does it mean to make a film from a collective perspective as opposed to an individual's perspective um maybe like the most like strange, and I, I don't think by any means he was a representative of anybody's politics, but I mean, Eisenstein and Battleship uh-huh. Potemkin um, being maybe the most famous example, but there's like a really fascinating movie from the 1940s by a screenwriter who was um, blacklisted called Salt of the Earth, which really takes on um, a collective style of my, filmmaking. My cinematographer on, on Mate One, Haskell Wexler, um, got that through the lab by uh, they couldn't get it processed in the lab and so he he was making industrials in chicago and he put a different name on on the film cans and sent it through the work saying that it was a documentary Mm -hmm. Um, and uh most of the the professional actors in it had also been um uh blacklisted already rosaria revueltas i think her Mm -hmm. name was who was a star of it Mm -hmm. Um, went she, back to Mexico and couldn't get work because right, the American State arrested. Department like yeah. leaned on them to, to blacklist her as well. So Yeah, that's a fascinating film too for using, part of the whole theory of making it was that they were using an actual strike and dramatizing the story of an ongoing strike that was happening at the border um, between, I believe, Texas and and Mexico. And so many of the actors are non-actors who were participants in this this strike. Um, And yeah, just a completely fascinating movie that tries to reimagine that question of, well, how do you make union organizing dramatic? Um, And how do you make it reflect a body that is not just one person mm-hmm. um, and so it's like it's it's always a fascinating thing to see sort of how films tackle that when when it is the subject mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I mean in the case of mate one I didn't want it to just be a pep rally so there's a real question as to what however this particular organizing thing ends up are these people going to be able to stay together mm-hmm. you know when we say we who do we include 
And that, that's the one big union idea that, that the Wobblies had. Mm -hmm. But syndicalism is much more, you know, may just say, you know what, you know, our particular union, we don't need black workers. You know, we don't need immigrants. You know, so the Knights of Labor um, in the, you know, 1800s, um, you know, were organized a lynch mob and killed a bunch of Chinese people in West Virginia, um, you know, because they felt like their jobs were being, you know, uh, they just couldn't compete with those, those Chinese people who didn't even speak their language. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a leap, you know, a, a union organizing as far as just a, a shop union or even an industry union is only one step in, in a bigger thing, which is very hard to portray dramatically. A stunning directorial debut from filmmaker Annabelle Atanasio, Mickey and the Bear is a gripping portrait of family and addiction. Faced with the responsibility of caring for her veteran father, an electrifying James Badge Dale, headstrong teen Mickey, a star-turning performance by Camilla Marone, does what she can to keep her household afloat. But when the opportunity to leave home appears, she must make an impossible decision between familial obligation and personal fulfillment. Mickey and the Bear is now playing at Film Forum in New York City. Tickets are available at mickeyandthebear.com. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan. Plus, Rossellini's history films, streaming Adam Sandler, composer Fatima Al-Qadidi on Atlantics, and much more. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. This makes me think a little bit, uh, just going back to the, also the, the collective idea and how do you show that on screen. It, I mean, in a broader sense, it, it's even more than just about unions, it's about how do you show a democratic process on screen? You know, how do you, how do you dramatize some sort of representative process on it's screen? It's generally in a montage. Um, <laughs> if you secret? ever see um, uh, Battle for Algiers, Oh, yeah. um, the last five minutes or so is a montage, which is, it looks like, okay, they've wiped out all the, the rebels and this thing is dead. And then there's like a montage and you realize, no, they didn't wipe it out. Mm -hmm. um, and you get a feeling of, oh, well, we, we were just watching maybe a half dozen characters and they got rolled up by the forces of oppression. Mm -hmm. But this idea that they started had another life yeah. and it ends with all those women ululating mm -hmm. and the French are out of Algeria. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it, it uh, you know, I mean, that, that's a terrific movie and that's also a movie that breaks all sorts of rules. I, I love that movie. Um, I, I mean, just thinking about a more, a more recent movie that was interesting in terms of how it showed political activity. Um, Peter Liu, I don't know. Did you, did you have a chance to see Peter no, Liu? No, I haven't seen oh, okay. it yet. I'll just proselytize for a second here, because <laughs> um, it's because it's you know it's a it's a Mike Lee movie yeah. that's people always thought this is not a Mike Lee movie. Has yet. it been distributed here? It was eventually. Um, I think it originally was going to be released last fall for two days, or? <laughs> but then it was bumped to this spring. Yeah, and it oh, wasn't. Okay. It wasn't this past spring, rather. Uh, it did come out, but mm -hmm. yeah, obviously didn't didn't really. It's in Manchester, as it said. Um, yeah, I think that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. in Manchester. Yeah, and um, it's yeah, it's about you know a, 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 again like a kind of um, factory workers um, 
protesting and it's an interesting look because it shows you the different players you know there's like a demagogue basically comes in that's going to lead the effort and and um and it's a movie that manages to show you lots of different aspects of the community and how it all comes together at the end um it's not like glorious you know <laughs> the ending is not a great ending mm -hmm. but it it shows you in, in, a, in a kind of complicated way the different like gears that are working in, in a kind of um, the, the way politics happens on the ground. It almost reminded me of Lincoln a little, the Steven Spielberg movie, because mm -hmm. um, I liked all the kind of running around in that movie, the just back, getting the votes. backroom politics. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I was hoping you were going to say Aaron Brockovich, but I guess it's just not not on the cards <laughs> for today. No, tell us how does Aaron? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think that it's an interesting thing of like how do you union organizing, any kind of organizing, political organizing, you know, there are the big actions that if you're outside of outside of organizing, that's what you see and that's sort of the the um, the perception of it. But all of that takes an extraordinary amount of orchestration, which, you know, in some in some ways it's just a lot of meetings, you know, like you're you're trying to figure out what is what's the strategy for this, how do we execute it, how do we make it into the thing that we want to make it? And those are inherently in some senses, I mean, they're certainly not kinetic and you could say that they're not dramatic. And so there are uh, how movies on sort of a varying scale from sort of more art film, style to more popular style, which I think Aaron Brockovich would fall into. How they tackle that like organizing right. being a bunch of meetings question is also like a no small formal issue. Yeah. In American movies, you know, the kind of cult of the individual, whether it's a Western or anything else, Aaron Brockovich is you know, the center right. of the thing. And, and I'm sure that's a lot of how it got made. So there's a great part for somebody and, and you have somebody to root for and, mm -hmm. you know, and she wins, mm -hmm. you know, so there's even a happy ending, yeah. you know, kind of thing for it. But um, collective stuff is really tough to do mm -hmm. um, in, in film and especially in, in, you know, to meet an American audience's expectations and comfort level. Right. Um, Teo, before you, uh, when we were preparing for this, you mentioned something about um, John's films and class consciousness. I was curious if, if you want to sure before this is the the backstage portion of the <laughs> of the panel before we were we were talking about sort of some things that we potentially wanted to talk about and one of the things i was curious to ask you given you know what your work has been um is where a sense of class consciousness came from you know i'm always fascinated by you know what is people's story about how they came to think the way that they do about how people interact yeah, I, I think some of it is just paying attention, you know, growing <laughs> up and looking around you. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to a fairly mixed high school, so there were, you know, kids who were on welfare and kids from, you know, very professional households. Um, I, I didn't know that there were prep schools in America. I thought they were all in Britain and, and you know, Peter Lawford and people like that and the Kennedys must have gone over to England. So <laughs> when I got to college and I met American kids who'd gone, to, you know, because prep schools to me was like the military school where mm -hmm. the really bad kids who got kicked out of Catholic school got sent. You know, just, just there was a range of income levels and stuff like that at the same time that you all took gym together. And there was this interesting thing as, you know, you know, you know, the black guy who, you know, his mom runs a restaurant and, you know, she has a Cadillac and, you know, he's kind of Reggie the third or whatever he is, and then really, really poor white kid. So it wasn't necessarily all tied to race. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, and some of that came out in, in a movie I made called Baby It's You, where you know this, this couple, um, Vincent Spano and Rosanna Arquette, you know, she's a Jewish doctor's daughter, and his dad's a you know Italian American you know trash collector, and he's not going to finish high school, and she's going to go on to to you know um, uh, Sarah Lawrence. Um, they can be together in high school, and there's going to be this moment when it just clicks, and they're just not going to be on the same level anymore, and it's not necessarily about income. You know, there's other factors in America, especially education is one of them. Um, you know, just what you carry in your head is one of them. Um, and then there are those people who just live in that, you know, rich and famous world, who have always lived in that world, who who we like to see movies about or TV <laughs> shows about, but you rarely run into, mm-hmm. um, you know. And, and you know, to, to me that's fascinating because Americans don't like to think that we have class. Uh, Barbara Ehrenreich talks about some survey where nobody would say they were working class. Everybody said they were middle class. You know, it's just something that Americans never accepted. And, you know, and so there's like, you know, middle class people and unemployed people and then the super rich and that's Mm -hmm. it. And there aren't, there's so many gradations. And, um, you know, it means something you know, or it doesn't. You let it mean something or it doesn't. And other people, it means something to them or it doesn't, whether it's employers or, you know, socially or whatever. But um, we have it and it makes us really uncomfortable. Yeah. It's it's interesting. I wonder if, uh, just in terms of how that can be, how class can be talked about more openly, I wonder if, if things somehow maybe shifted in the 90s in some way um, with, the the I don't know this kind of way of thinking about the office as, as the and, and the workplace in a different way from than from the 80s in a way I'm thinking of like office space or something like that and then mm-hmm. you know uh, somehow I, I feel like there's an interesting change from uh, you know 80s movies where wealth was kind of you know, valorized um, and speaking very generally, you know, a lot of it. But even you'd even find an 80s if you watch John Hughes movies. It, well, sure, everybody listens to these mansions it's just crazy <laughs> you know and it's that's just america yeah. yeah it's it's kind of funny and and it's very kind of cartoonish also you know mm-hmm. um i mean they're great comedies i love them to death um but you know it's almost i mean you and then you get to a point where last year i love this movie uh sorry to bother you um which it's almost as if to talk about you know class or and work and race it it tries a completely different tack which is a surrealist tack and that's an interesting other tactic to take um, in terms of talking about this, which is, well, maybe there's some discomfort about talking about this in a realist fashion. What if I, I introduce a kind of science fiction mm-hmm. kind of aspect and that, that, that makes it possible? I think so... Um... So much to say. In, yeah. in <laughs> I know, I kind of threw a lot out <laughs> No, 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 but, but I think that like in, in terms of what you're saying about like 90s film focusing in on an office, I do think that part of what is going on in terms of what the narrative cinematically has been with regards to labor and class is also the change of an American economy from an industrial economy to being a service-based and, and uh, office-based economy, too. It's like, the, I, I also thought about that while watching Mate One um, in preparation for this talk, but the, the union movement has so traditionally been associated with trades and with um, manual labor. Um, and it's meant that like the 
the conception that people have of work, what constitutes work, um, what you should be grateful to do as opposed to what you know that you have to do because there just needs to be some ore that's ripped out of the ground. Mm -hmm. um, like, that's a completely different conception of, of how people come to meet the world in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you, you work without getting your hands dirty, but you're still working. Mm -hmm. um, and so like in terms of like a trajectory of, of how labor has been portrayed in film, I think it's one of those ways in which film winds up unconsciously mirroring economic circumstances. You know, I don't think that there was anybody who was in the 90s saying, I'm going to make a movie in an office because this is about the the fundamental change in economics in the United States <laughs> right. economy. But, but it just winds up taking on sort of the larger state of the world mm -hmm. by trying to be a popular medium. In yeah, a way. Like, like Kevin Smith made clerks, not construction guy. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was, I was interesting. I, I, um, Studs Terkel had an interview book called Working, which kind of oh. got him on the map. And nationally, he'd been a known guy in Chicago before that. And there's a little quote, I forget who, who it's from at the beginning, but it says, well, you know, the only thing you do besides work eight hours a day is sleep eight hours a day. And I was thinking, who gets to only work eight hours a day anymore? <laughs> that that's right. like a period, you mm -hmm. know, kind of quote. Because one of the things that's happened is um, people get paid less for the same amount of work, and and a lot of people don't get paid enough to really, you know support themselves and their family and so they they have more than one job mm -hmm. or they work at walmart and they don't they won't give them 40 hours a week because so they don't have to pay benefits so they they got to piece together two or three jobs or we worked in alaska where people you know usually have three or four jobs depending on the season and they piece together a living that way and it comes out to more than 40 hours a week mm -hmm. yeah um, i mean and then and then of course i'm just thinking again about um, how different types of work are, are shown in movies. One thing we haven't talked as much about is gendered work, for example, and, and, and kind of visible labor of that. And um, I mean, you know, one of my favorite movies is Jean Dielman. I don't think we could have a conversation about talking about <laughs> or mentioning Jean Dielman, the Chantal Ackerman movie, because, you know, there's an example of a movie which does show you the 24-hour aspect of, of a certain type of mm -hmm. work um, and um, is also kind of riveting <laughs> even though it is very rep repetitious and mm -hmm. um it's it's interesting that's interesting that she's able to make that as compelling as, as she can it's it's not often re been repeated a movie that can show you the drudgery of work while mm -hmm. also being that mesmerizing yeah it, it is tough i mean yeah. uh, a, a lot of work is you know certainly a job i would never take would be to be a toll taker somewhere uh -huh. because of of just the i'm in a booth and there's nothing to do right um you know you have to pay me a lot more for that than a than a job that actually is kind of you interact with people or you know right. there's some difficulty and some challenges or whatever yeah um, but yeah. usually yeah. that's a really low paid job yeah um, I thought we might see if we get any questions or comments in the audience on, on the topic of working class. Um, I came in a little late. I was running below behind, but um, I, I see one, not just questions about the working class, but John, I was going to ask you, uh, about if you if you didn't cover it, some of the filmmakers that really inspired you. I see it's 70, 79, you had your first film, The Secaucus 7, mm -hmm. 40 years on. 
Congratulations. And I see you donated your archives in 14 to the University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. Just reading about you here. But uh, <laughs> looking back, it's 40 years. Who were the f filmmakers when you were a young guy that uh, you really know, inspired um, you? To, to actually think about making movies, um, I, I, you know, I liked Hollywood movies, but I assume that was something that happened in a, in a universe far, far away, you know, and that uh, I didn't know anybody who ever had anything to do with it. Um, when I started thinking about, um, oh, I could make a movie, um, I was watching some of the Italian neorealist filmmakers um, in this country, John Cassavetes movies, uh, Melvin Van Peebles, he made a couple kind of movies with nothing that you know played and really had a lot of impact on people. Um, uh, Akira Kurosawa, um, those movies just get the kind of humanism in them. Um, you know, totally different culture. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I'd say kind of everything you watch, you, you kind of, and it can be in a reaction of, you know, for instance, thinking about a writer's work. Um, I almost never see writers well portrayed, <laughs> especially in old movies back in the, you know, what I call the Carboniferous era when you had a typewriter and you had carbon paper to make a, a copy of it. Um, they always have these writers getting frustrated and ripping the paper out and bundling it and throwing a little paper ball. You don't waste paper like that if you're a struggling writer. It's just like ridiculous. You, you write over it or you turn it over on the other side and you try to do better. Um, but yeah, I, 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 you know, a lot of people, but a lot of it was when, when I first started to, you know, I didn't see a, a movie with subtitles until I was in college. So it wasn't something that I grew up with, but um, I saw some of those movies dubbed. Um, two Women, Desika's movie, Two Women, I saw it dubbed and it had a big effect on me. Um, but I, I, you know, it, kind of I was as in, interested, I liked movies and I thought it was a cool storytelling thing and I'm a fiction writer as well. Um, but I was, I was kind of interested in, there's all these cool stories I'm not seeing. Um, there's a, a, a nice um, book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And uh, each chapter is a different kind of confrontation with you know, the Western expansion of America and a different Indian nation. And as I read the book, I said, I've seen this movie, and Charles Bronson played that chief, and you know Jack Palance played that chief, and Jeff Chandler played that chief, and these are better stories than the movie I saw, and that was something that that I always felt like as you know it's kind of like there's all this stuff around me, this life around me, and I never see it on a screen, and some of it could be pretty dramatic. So some of it was not what was there; it was what wasn't there. Hmm. Thank you for everything you do. Um, we've been talking about movies, or you've been talking mostly about movies made in a capitalist setting. Do, mm -hmm. I'm not very, very well informed about those coming from communist settings, say like a Chinese movie or something from Russia. Mm -hmm. Do any of you have opinions on that through the lens of working class? Mm. Interesting. Um, there are a few answers to this. I would say that Soviet cinema is a really fascinating place to look at class because uh, for a period, um, particularly I would say like maybe mid 50s, there are there is like a really fascinating attempt to 
basically make Soviet films in the same capacity as American films with the same sort of propagandistic effort um, in a way that like when watching them it really does draw your attention to how in American films the sort of baked in subtext or the the structure that supports American storytelling is a capitalist structure um, and so I, I find that some of the, like the Soviet working films from that era are really sort of fascinating juxtaposition because it's almost like you use similar visual techniques you use similar um, you know beautiful people and beautiful beautiful uh, cinematography but then take sort of the under the underbelly and change it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So those are those are some some interesting films from like a, a systemic perspective. Yeah, there's a there's a I did not very much seen movie called Top Dog from Poland, uh, directed named Felix Falk, which is about a guy who is in the entertainment union, and he wants to be the MC at some big you know, celebration that a lot of party leaders are gonna be at. And it's basically uh, and the entire movie of him bribing, threatening, seducing people so he can, you know, and it's, it's an allegory to how you get anything in that particular dysfunctional system. So it's interesting when they could get out, um, they might be things that were allegorical enough that they could get made and get out. Uh, he also had a couple films that got made and just, oh, that's very nice. You're in, still in film school. We're putting that on the shelf. Yeah, we'll we'll watch it and critique it, but we're not going to let the public see it. Um, so that's, you know, one of the things is, you know, in a lot of those systems, you didn't just get to make films, you know. Um, the You know, the, the state supported the artists and they worked on what the state decided should get made. I mean, it's interesting, I guess, Tarkovsky being one of the best known like Russian filmmakers, but his movies are on a dreamlike plane, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for all your wonderful films, Mr. Sales. I'm remembering back to City of Hope, which is one of my all-time favorites. And I did see Mate One, but somehow City of Hope had a much bigger impact on me. I had a much bigger reaction to it. And maybe I'm remembering them wrong, but I'm wondering if that's because you feel it's a more individual take on class struggle than Mate One is. Well, I think it, it was contemporaneous for one thing. So it wasn't something set in the past. Um, and, and so it's a little bit easier to, to feel like it's the only movie that I did. Uh, it's, it's about corruption in an unnamed New Jersey city. Um, don't mean to pick on New Jersey. I lived there at the time. Um, but um, it's the only movie where I didn't have to do any research. I had written the script and I felt like, yeah, maybe things have changed. You know, I'd lived in East Boston. I'd lived in Schenectady. I'd lived in, in Hoboken. I'd lived in a bunch of places like that and pretty much knew what the political system was. And I, so I started, you know, for about three days, I would read the Hudson Dispatch and the, the, um, the Jersey Journal, and it was like, they read my screenplay. All these headlines, <laughs> they have ripped from my screenplay. How did they get in there? Um, so I think it was, it was you know, a familiar American kind of corruption. And to, to me, what was interesting about that is to, to you know, to accept that um, patronage politics had its, and has its, its function, and it's not all negative, that if you pay off, if, if, if it's, you know, you vote for me and I give you jobs, 
um, you know, within the community that you're giving the jobs to, that's something for something. You know, it's it's a it's a legitimate transaction. Um, but uh, that let's question this thing of oh, corruption is just bad. You know, how how do you tell somebody for the greater good, which might be a little abstract, amorphous, you're not going to give your cousin Vinny a job when you know that he's so incompetent that he's not going to be able to feed his family any other way. How do you how do you do that? You know, sacrifice your family for this this vague idea. And then the other thing that was happening at that time with American cities, uh, many of them pretty big cities, Cleveland, Detroit, places like that, is okay. There's nothing left to steal. We'll let the blacks and Hispanics run the town now. And and it's like okay, we can give favors away, but they're really small favors because there's nothing left. Um, and that that to me was an interesting phenomenon. Uh, and really the only thing that I left, I, I said it in a very small city, so the media wouldn't be a player in the game. But, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a very complex movie, you know, with, with people, with all, all, everybody has their own agenda. And, and the one thing that I was able to do is there are a lot of master shots in it where you trade from one group of people to another group of people or from this guy doing this scam to this guy with this agenda without a cut. And a lot of the point of that was these are people who, because of their prejudices or because of their limited interest and point of view, think those people, whoever those people are, have nothing to do with my life. When in fact, as the circle you know, kind of becomes a full circle. You realize everything you do in a in a system like that does affect somebody else, negatively or positively. Thank you for the time and for everything you do. Um, you know, we talked about uh, the role of different media cultures. You brought up the British working class and how they perceive working class and how that might differ from the American or the Korean views on it. Uh, two two sided question. One, where do you think you know those differences come from? Given that working class is such a fundamental part of the human condition, as Stud Sturkel explored in in Working, and two, what do you think of as the role of cinema in either unifying that human condition or bringing out differences across cultures? Well, I think I think in the case of Britain, um, there was much more ability to inherit your position than there was in the United States. Um, you know, most of the, uh, you know, native nations, most of those tribes and cultures, um, you didn't necessarily get to be the chief if your father was the chief. Even that wasn't necessarily inherited. Um, you had to be somebody who people thought could handle the job and, and who had won their admire, admiration. Um, the British, you know, economic system, you know, eventually became to be based on, well, there are certain people who have to, you know, scramble for a living, and there's other people who, you know, I think the phrase was, he has 100,000 a year, you know, and that's, that's just he's inheriting it, um, or he married into it, or whatever. And that's, that's going to, you know, if the guy's, you know, not profligate or whatever, he's gonna, that's going to put him in a rank. Um, in the United States, where we were kind of starting from scratch when the, the white people came here, um, there wasn't that inherited thing. 
Um, there were a few places that you know have tried to do it, and there are little pockets of that. But it wasn't. It didn't run the society. You didn't live in a borough where you knew who the Lord was, and He represented you in the House of Lords automatically. Um, so the the starting points were very very differently different, and therefore the way you think about the world is, you know, if if you're a you know a peasant in Britain in 1860 you don't think I could become a lord. If you're Henry Ford and you're tinkering, you may not even think of it, but you can become a, a, a major capitalist, you know, guy that everybody knows your name and you live in a mansion. Can happen fairly I, easily. I also think like with, with regards to the United States specifically, really like the 20th century narrative around labor is so strongly impacted by the Cold War. I mean, the just total decimation of uh, the Communist Party in the United States when it had been the Communist Party, the socialism as a movement, when they had been you know strong enough to support major major organization across the country, both like winning political seats and also in terms of. Um, enacting change and and producing unions, including the one in which uh, Meituan is based on. Um, but the, the political trajectory of the United States with regards to the Cold War, I think really just fundamentally changed what labor and, and class and the narratives around it, what they became in this country. Yeah, and, and to answer the second part of your question, as far as what, what movies can do to erase some of that stuff. I, I think the best of movies um, make you expand your consciousness in a way. I think uh, if you're open to it, the, you know, the best of movies have you meet and consider people you may not get to meet in the flesh yet or ever. Um, and that's that's pretty big deal. Um, you know, the, the, in the 60s, there was a phrase, you know, you're either part of the solution or part of the problem. And I, if you look at movies made from about 1958 back, most movies were part of the problem um, in the way that they portrayed race, sex, you know, ethnicity, you know, labor, whatever. And then, you know, some movies started taking a few more chances and and uh, kind of bucking the, you know, the official story and, well, maybe we can get away with this and maybe we have to hide it in science fiction or something like that. Um, but, there, you know, I think some movies are really part of the solution. And, and most of that is to meet some people and feel like, okay, they're not that exotic. There's stuff I have in common. I, I could hang with those people or I'm rooting for those people. Um, and, you know, it's great when movies can do that. I have a question about uh, genre itself and the working class and the proletariat and your work with, with uh, Roger Corman. Yeah, I, I started out writing um, for Roger Corman, who, who made, you know, mostly creature features and uh, Macho Mama movies and Chicks and Chains movies and anything that could play at a drive-in. Um, I think the most positive thing about what Roger did is um, wh whether he had a little streak of rebellion in him, but he was basically a business guy and a very smart one, um, he realized that his audience um, had a healthy disrespect for authority. 
And those movies, whatever the genres were, there's, they're pretty anti-authoritarian. Uh, the women usually break out of prison. Um, you know, they have to do it in their underwear, but they usually break <laughs> out of prison. Um, but whatever, whatever those genres were, they really kind of, you know, had mainstream society and some of its rules, including a lot of the bad ones, in its crosshairs. And, and that was, you know, that was fun to play with when I was writing for him. I, I wrote a movie for him uh, that was called The Lady in Red. And uh, I, I basically, it was supposed to be about the woman who was, one of the women who was with John Dillinger when he was shot by the police in Chicago. And uh, I basically made it this epic movie about a woman, you know, going through the middle class and eventually becoming an outlaw. Uh, and she goes through being a factory worker and a prostitute and eventually um, is robbing banks with John Dillinger. And then the director called me and said, you know, I'm making this movie in, in Los Angeles for $800,000 and you've got a 138-page script and, <laughs> you know, help. And so I cut some things, but he kept the spirit of it. And it's actually a very well-directed movie by, by Louis Teague. And so, you know, I, I think there was something nice and almost anarchic um, about some of those movies. There's a very badly made and kind of funky <laughs> movie called Wild in the Streets um, from that period, which is a, about somehow some congressman trying to curry favor with the youth. Um, they allow uh, people to vote at the age of 15 and up instead of, you know, 18 and up. And all of a sudden, you know, kids take over the country. It's, it's not good. It's the Jeremy Corbyn approach. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I think that's unfortunately all the time we have for our talk, but it's good to end on anarchy, right? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Camilla Marone stars as Mickey, a teen doing what she can to keep her household and her opioid-addicted father afloat. When an opportunity to leave home appears, she's forced to make an impossible decision between obligation and fulfillment. Mickey and the Bear is now playing at Film Forum in NYC. Tickets are available at mickeyandthebear.com. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.